Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show. Jeff Snyder and I are joined by a very special guest, Daniel Want, the Chief Investment Officer of Prerequisite Capital. That's what it says on his business card. But who is he really? We're going to find out on This Is Your Eurodollar Life. I, I came up with that seconds ago, Daniel. You'll have to forgive me. Welcome to the show, Daniel. Hello. How are you doing? Wonderful. Oh, by the way, if the connections aren't fabulous, ladies and gentlemen, it's because Daniel is up in Australia. That's right. We're recording. Jeff and I are live from Tasmania, one of the few places that's south of Australia. Well, uh, Daniel, I've used up two of my three bad jokes in the first few minutes, so I'm going to be counting on you and Jeff to carry the rest of the show. And uh, But let me get the ball rolling. I was listening to a podcast with, um, oh gosh, isn't this funny? What was the, uh, you should have wrote Jordan the name Pe- down. <laughs> I was listening to a podcast with Jordan Peterson, the, uh, the Canadian clinical psychologist, philosopher, author, and he had Yoanmi Park on his show, and she was a defector from North Korea. And he was talking to her about North Korea, but at one point they got to talking about education and how it was her father's wish uh, for her to be educated. And so once she made it to South Korea, eventually she made her way to Columbia University. And what did she tell uh, Dr. Peterson? That it was in a complete and utter waste of time. The only thing that was in any way redeemable was one biology class, she said. It was otherwise a complete waste. Not a coincidence, I think, because the following week they had on uh, a Canadian this time. Let me see. Let me make sure I get the right name. Rex Murphy, the, the columnist, speaker, interviewer, well-known. He's been doing the, in the business for decades, and he loves the university, loves it. But he also had the same advice. He said, if people come up to me these days, I tell them, don't go to university. Same, same perspective, two totally different worlds. And the reason I bring all this up is because maybe people don't know, but you sort of went through something like that at the beginning of your career. You went to school, and what happened next? I guess my question to you is if young people come up, not that you're not young, Daniel, I guess that was, oh, I felt, I guess I'm implying you're not young, Daniel, but uh, that means, what am I, another, a third terrible joke, I've used them all up. If young people come up to you, Daniel, and they say, what should I do after I finish high school? Tell us a little bit about your schooling and then what you would be telling people these days. Well, um, normally, normally that conversation, and, and that actually happens quite a lot. Uh, the first thing is it depends what you want to do, basically. Um, and, and this is where I had an issue because when I started in a very conventional way, especially went to university, um, I, I was wanting to understand how the world worked and, and how things really operate, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, particularly from a, an economics and markets focused uh, sort of lens. The problem was is that when I got there, I realized that um, 
the educational institution that I was at didn't exactly have the same objectives that I did. Um, and very naively, as whenever you know, I'd sit down with the, the professors and the lecturers and, and all of this sort of thing to sort of explore what they were teaching us, because they would frequently ridicule their own assumptions at a first principles level. Um, but between those first principle assumptions and the broader sort of elegant frameworks and theories that they'd progressively build into, they'd go from ridiculing those assumptions to just religious belief, basically. Um, and I didn't realize it at the time, but a lot of, you know, like a lot of their identity is wrapped up in their positions and the, the letters after their name and, and that all, and even the very nature of their being in terms of, you know, helping the next generation um, and educating the youth and all of this sort of thing is all wrapped up in that. And so when I would challenge that and start to, to tie these elegant frameworks and theories back to the ridiculous first principles, um, they, they didn't necessarily appreciate that. And also then what I would have thought would be, um, you know, the next logical step, which well, if these are ridiculous, let's go find more useful uh, sort of starting points to our inquiry uh, as to how things worked. You know, they just didn't want to want any of that. And so my naivety met with not curiosity on their part, but more like frustrated anger almost um, that, that I would challenge any of this. And I didn't fully realize what was going on, but eventually I, I reached the conclusion that I could probably do a better job educating myself than um, staying where I was in university or on the university path. You know, I, I did a lot of the finance, the majority of the finance sort of subjects, but getting into economics was just, just ridiculous. And so I basically just reached the, well, I basically was by the university and then went and sought to educate myself. Um, and that wasn't straightforward. Now there's huge consequences with doing that. Like I burnt a lot of bridges. Um, in the process, and I largely just became a hermit for several years with the, another box of books turning up on the doorstep every every few weeks. But and and this is where I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that course of action to young people. Um, and if they want to get more or, or move into more conventional career paths, they probably need to tolerate the ridiculousness of a lot of what is academic education. Um, but when you burn all your bridges, you become very uh, focused and motivated. Probably every three to six months, you think you've probably ruined your life, but at the same time, uh, you're learning so much and you're figuring out so many different things and you're connecting such a, a wide variety of, of elements together that, you know, it, it gives you the perspective to sort of keep going and it's, it's also very fascinating anyway. It's that burning thirst for knowledge, right, Daniel? It's, you know, and it's exact. I had the same experience in my, my own university experience was very similar. It was sort of a, not just a letdown, it was a huge disappointment, specifically macroeconomics, but also to me, finance courses too. I mean, you can go any number of areas, Black Shoals, for instance, we're going to imply volatility from the marketplace. Why? Why are we doing that? Wouldn't we have something better? Macroeconomics, I mean, when I was in high school, I started running into the, the early, I mean, this was back in the 80s, so 
you know, the early, the early period of quantitating, you know, quantitative everything. And I thought, okay, when I get to college, I'm going to get to see the real models. This is, this is all just fake. This is all really overly simplified. This can't possibly be how economists actually, actually do their job. And then you get to the, to the, to, you know, the four-year college and think, wait a minute, this isn't any better. This is all, this is all just the same junk that we saw before. And you, you keep waiting for, eventually them to say okay here's the real stuff we're just, this is this is all just fake and we're, we're just we just put that out there but here's here's the real complicated real world models that we actually use and for me it was so incredibly disappointed because those never turned up it actually became as you said you know even these oversimplified ridiculously useless models to economists they're like their children they treat them as if they're their own flesh and blood and they 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 won't they know they don't work in a lot of settings but they yet they refuse to to reform to reform them or to do anything else with them and it, it was just such a shock to me that you know as someone else who's who's only interested in finding knowledge to figure out when you get to college that's not what college is for it has you know has less to do with knowledge than anything else it's it's almost like that's kind of at the end of the line and you're lucky if you find any i uh... Uh, I'm just going to, Jeff, when I first spoke to Daniel the very first time, I told him how blessed I was that I went to Arizona State University <laughs> because I, listening to you two, I realized what a charmed life I lead because you two knew going into college what you needed, what you wanted, you were after knowledge. That sort of thirst for knowledge didn't come to me until much later. And I told Daniel how lucky I was that I went to a bad school. Could you imagine if I had gone to a good school, then I would have believed it all. But I went to a school I knew was like, you know, and it didn't, it didn't uh, sink in. I wasn't institutionalized into that way of thinking. And that therefore I could uh, accept other points of view as I grew wiser and older. And I knew, hey, this makes more sense. Daniel, yeah, it's almost the fallacy of the sunk cost too, right? The more you spend on your education, the less likely you are to let go of it. Even though you might know that, hey, you know, you go to Harvard or an Ivy League school or you know the equivalent wherever else around the world, and you think, I just spent all this money and went to the top-notch institutions. I'll be damned if I'm going to just throw it all away and start from scratch. You know, I went to a little nondescript four-year college in Buffalo, New York. That I mean. You know, I, through my own personal history, it was the same thing as I think that, that Daniel was describing. At some point, you say, "I don't really want to go any further in education because my desire for knowledge is not being satiated by what I'm given." And so, it's really I'm going to do this myself. And you're absolutely right; it's it's a it's a really difficult challenge, especially in the financial services industry, which absolutely does not want anybody rocking the boat. And so, you're always you're always that natural tension between trying to figure out what's really going on versus to be employable, you kind of have to put your head down and say, yes, this is, I believe that too. <laughs> Pretty much. The most dangerous thing about people in the economics profession, at least, but, you know, is that, you know, we go to these universities and society tells us or tells these young kids that they know something, right? And then they come out and they actually believe that they know something. <laughs> And that makes us, it makes them very dangerous, you know, and whereas we've just got to like really jolt that it, to stay, actually the, the straw that broke the camel's back when I was at university that caused me to just totally walk away was when I realized that I was starting to think like that. And it's, it's sort of hard for me to describe, but it really does put this set of blinkers on even the way you process and integrate 
um, and, and understand the world. Um, and it's it's a bit of a it's the old um, it's the old sort of principle or saying that a fish doesn't know that water exists until he's out of it, right? And so most of the time you don't understand the paradigm you're in until you can get into and explore deeply other paradigms of which you can then compare and contrast. Then you start to be able to understand the paradigm you're in and the new paradigms as well, and you start to get that broader perspective and, and deeper understanding of things. Daniel, let's talk about some of those things. Let's, because I, th I think the three of us are saying it's not the education that we're poo-pooing, it's the university, which fails to bring the wisdom of the ages. And whenever I describe you on Twitter, and I don't have a lot of space, Daniel, I, I describe you as the early 21st century Australian first principles philosopher. You said that phrase once already, and you get those first principles by reading the original texts of the original political economists and absorbing that and referencing and reconciling it with what other people are saying, you know, original great thinkers. And that comes across in your work, which I've got here. And Daniel, it's a finance show, so I'm sure that people are interested to know what you think about markets. And as we discuss that, the first principles will come out. I've got four options here. Which way would you want to go? We could do your most recent one about the Capital Markets Review, world and U.S. equities, currencies, China. Your uh, choice. Yeah, I mean, whatever goes. I mean, we, we spend a lot of time talking about first principles, but also spend a lot of time, as you know, trying to just explore the data and reduce data sets, abstract concepts down into data sets. Um, and so, yeah, it, exploring these different things. Let, yeah. me, let me go then to the most recent one then. Your memory will be the sharpest for the most recent one. May 31st, it's the Capital Markets Review, Reasonability of Pricing Assumptions. Here, let me read a little bit of the executive summary. One of the more interesting aspects of the last 12 months has been the pricing structures that have emerged in euro dollar treasury and us dollar markets especially in contrast to the more immediately focused commodity markets increasingly they are priced in a manner that is looking through the existing bout of reflationary growth and despite popular opinion thinking they are not pricing sustained and escalating inflation and recovery Tell us a little bit what you see in these three huge markets that's telling you we're not off to the races. Yes, well, um, so that pulls together a lot of threads, uh, especially back to the first principles understanding of the nature of the system we're in and the world um, and what actually drives inflation and growth and all of this sort of thing. Um, but yeah, the short version is, uh, the way the, those three markets in particular, which tend to be the, the more in, in the broader global system, they're probably three of the most important markets in the world. They also have in aggregate, um, the largest, uh, probably more well-informed, stronger balance sheet sort of, uh, uh, participants in them as well, you know, and so in terms of proximity to information, 
it's intriguing and, and also just as a reflection of broader conditions in, in the global complex system, very interesting that, you know, when you really pull on the threads as to what these different markets are pricing, um, that the disconnect is so profound as to what especially is the, the popular narrative uh, today. And basically, they, the short version of it all, and obviously, the, well, obviously, you've read the report, it's, it's not exactly a short report, and it stands upon, you know, many other first principles reports that we've also produced, but basically, it's, it's pricing a very structurally weak environment. And in fact, in that report, a big can of worms that I didn't go into is even what real yields are telling us, you know, um, from the beginning of 2020, you know, we've seen basically inflation expectations run higher, real yields collapse, right? And nominal yields sort of bounce to flat, you know, since the beginning of 2020. Now, even that in its own right betrays, um, you know, that this is essentially like a transitory dynamic. The, the growth pricing and the growth expectations and implications even in real yields actually almost completely offset the bounce in inflationary expectation. And so, like, but that's a broader discussion in its own right. It's sort of like everywhere we look, whether it's forward, like yield curves and all the different pricing structures that are within euro dollar and treasury markets, in addition to currency markets themselves, they're actually signaling an, incre in, an incredibly impaired growth and broader inflationary environment. There's excess capacity in the system, left, right, and center. The very um, focus and objective of most uh, policy, be it monetary or fiscal or regulatory policy, all around the world is to literally suspend and disengage market mechanisms and to prevent a rebalancing and a washing out of excess capacity or underproductive structures out there in the economy. We're trying to avoid an asset impairment cycle, a debt default cycle, escalating unemployment, et cetera, et cetera. We've been trying to hold that wave back with this cumulative sort of mess that's been building for decades. And that's sustaining, surprise, surprise, you know, underproductive structures everywhere we look, right? And we see that both in the financial economy, where there's uh, deteriorating sort of returns on capital and, uh, and yields, by the way, are just a reflection of that broader environment or, or the return on capital type environment out there. Um, or the real economy where we're seeing basically all real activity, especially in the form of uh, capital expenditures and fixed uh, capital formation, which is pretty, pretty key to future productivity growth and expansion in, you know, more useful goods and services, which is the very definition of living standards, um, sort of, or the improvement of, of such, through to demographics deteriorating, et cetera, et cetera. It's sort of this overcapacity environment where we actually have more actual supply out there of goods and services being sustained beyond what is actually useful. Right? And it's the useful uh, abundance of useful goods and services that is actually key to maintaining and increasing living standards. And even when we get to the inflation question, 
you know, there's a common disconnect where, and you see this all the time with different commentators, where the things that matter, i.e. the useful goods and services, the prices of the things that matter in this world and in most economic systems are, are escalating higher over time, either through shrink shrinkflation or just an escalation in prices. Whereas the broader aggregate of goods and services in the broader economy uh, is consistently in this structurally disinflationary dynamic, right? And so the broader mass of things, both things that matter, the more useful items and the less useful stuff that is being produced and sustained, that in aggregate is very much disinflationary and almost has a deflationary bias. Uh, in time, which is what you would expect in an excess supply, impaired demand type global environment. Uh, whereas the price of things that actually are useful tends to be escalating and has, you know, higher prices because it's kind of being squeezed out by the sustaining of all these underproductive structures and allocation of resources, et cetera, et cetera. And so we have this disconnect, which is causing a lot of confusion. And then to top it all off, like you kind of mentioned before, if you're taking your inflationary signal from commodity markets, right, you're going to be even more confused because there's other, like the price of any given thing can go up for valid supply driven reasons, for valid demand driven reasons, and for, let's just call it monetary type phenomena as well. And in commodities, we have supply issues all over the place um, in many regards, and that's muddying the waters. And so any increase in price, we need to be able to disentangle as to what is actually causing that. And commodity markets by their very nature are more of an immediate term balancing of factors as opposed to pricing broader conditions and longer term environments, which we tend to get, especially in Euro dollar and uh, treasury type markets. Um, but anyway, you get the idea like this there's, there's so many you pull on one thread and we're into a multitude of other different threads but it all comes together giving us the same sort of underlying picture of this structurally impaired growth environment and also structurally impaired uh let's call it inflation type environment and dynamics because we're sustaining all of this underproductive capacity yeah, I think that's a good new way to put it as impaired, right? And, that, and we're really talking about a couple of different things. Uh, when we talk about impaired, the inflation case almost has to has to actually believe wholeheartedly that as deep as the recession was last year, it was just a one-off temporary recession, no big deal. Governments have papered it over with all the stimulus spending and things like that. And therefore, at the end of the day, here we are in the middle of 2021, there will be no consequences. You know, Uncle Sam in the United States and governments around the world have essentially suspended the laws of finance and economics, at least temporarily, so that, you know, the belief is out there that there'll be no there'll be no piper to pay. And I think that's one one sense of impairment that is definitely in the in the bond market in the globally. And I think the other one is, you know, more longer run consequences, which we saw in the immediate aftermath of the first financial crisis which was lack of growth and not just, you know, lack of immediate growth, but as you, as you pointed out already, the, the supply side mechanics or the, uh, you know, the potential parts of the, the equation that were impaired as well. So you have a problem where you have, we still haven't dealt with the problems that happened in 2020 or even 2008. We haven't got to the potential 
you know, what are the actual what are the actual losses that need to be taken? Because they need to be taken somewhere. And then on top of that, what is the actual long run growth paradigm look like once we do all that stuff? Or even if we don't do all that stuff, is it look is it is is it impaired as well? And I think that's really what's driving bond yields is there's two questions there that the more we the further we go, the more it looks like these are transitory you know, inflationary impacts and supply side factors, as you just said. It's really the asking the question, okay, once we get past all that, then what? What does the world look like? And I love the way you put it with the real yields because real yields are telling you something very important. The last time we saw real yields down this low was in the uh, 2012 and 2013. And it, it turned out those were right. You know, Real yields down that low were a pretty accurate picture of what the growth environment was going to be, especially what was to come in the rest of the world in 2014 and 2015. They were telling you, Okay, yeah, there's some stuff going on. It might be transitory, it might be reflationary, but you know, once all that stuff ends, the world does not look like it's in really great shape. Yeah, absolutely. And, and break-even inflation expectations at 20, 30 years relative to shorter-term ones, yeah. they're inverted as well. You know, and so it's and so future uh, longer-dated inflation expectations, as you know, are less than the the nearer sort of shorter term inflation expectations and so even there we're seeing a transitory pricing of dynamics it's it's kind of like everywhere we look and then in currency markets you know putting it in perspective you know the last 12 months we've largely seen the arguably at least at a, on a rate of change based system the largest impulse of growth and inflationary pricing dynamics into markets um, that we've probably seen in decades yet uh, and especially, you know, with all of the um, measures pursued in the U.S., in, in particular in the Fed, throwing the kitchen sink in many regards um, in the process. And yet we've not really been able to take out key supports in the U.S. dollar um, against the majority of currencies out there that matter. Would in you fact, agree? You know, I say all the time, too, that... Um... In, in the U.S. specifically, the Americans have an American bias, obviously, which is, I mean, that extends a lot of different. But in terms of the U.S. economy, the U.S. economy appears to be doing really well. If you look at the goods sector in, in particular, it looks like it's running red hot. But you look around the rest of the world. I don't know if this is your sense, too, but you look around the rest of the world and it's like much, much different. It's very different that the rest of the world is really struggling to come back from last year. So people who have a U.S. centric view and of course, that, that extends to the currency, their view of currency markets and everything else. I think there's there's a huge disconnect there too. Is that you know, Emil and I have talked about before global factors that are in, they're incorporated even in U.S. Treasury yields and real yields and things like that. There's a I think there's a misconception that the rest of the world looks like the U.S. goods sector when that's just not true at all. Oh, exactly, and you're exactly right. But the rest of the world, the general underpinnings of growth is, is so much more weaker than what we're seeing in the U.S. The other thing that people forget is, uh, you know, the current account deficit in the U.S. is arguably the most important uh, primary source of demand for the world. Yeah. Um, there is. And the U.S. in many regards has kind of temporarily bailed out the world and what it's done in the last 12 months. Now, when you take leading indicators on the current account deficit, which are usually uh, indicators of leading indicators of demand in the U.S., they're peaking as we speak. They're, they suggest a weakening path. Um, so the US current account deficit will actually contract over the next 12 months. 
uh, is the higher probable um, pathway that historic leading indicators and been any use in this regard are suggesting, right? And so if we're having the tide receding again, in terms of the, the demand that the US is providing to the rest of the world, and the US has backstopped the rest of the world in multiple different ways, by the way, as you would know well, especially even in a monetary sense, with all the different games they play, or the Fed will tend to backstop and roll out. Um, you know, this impulse and even the appearance of growth in the world is, is far more transitory than people realize because the foundations of these la this last 12 to 18 months worth of growth impulse, they are so weak, um, pretty much from every way you, you look at it. Yeah, just, you know, sorry, Emil, but uh, I was going to let's let's jump around to China here, because I think that goes along with a lot of uh, what we're talking about is that, you know, our view of China, at least my own view of China is that, that it, it's incredibly weak. It's it's much their rebound from the, the 2020 recession, which was an actual recession in China, which is the other component of global demand. Right. If the U.S. is one marginal supplier of demand, then the Chinese are certainly the other. And it's, you know, which one is, is stronger at different times is, you know, there's a dynamic relationship there. But, you know, you hear the you know, Chinese numbers are tremendous. They're huge. They're, they're awesome. You know, uh, imports were up 50 percent, I think, for, for May. The, the data the Chinese released just just the other day or was it yesterday. And so it looks like the Chinese are really, really, really a robust rebound. But when you look at some of the two year comparisons and things like that, it's kind of you shake your head and think, wait a minute, they're not even as strong as they were in 2019. When 2019 was, you know, that was a, that was a period of a, immense questionable growth in China, and so it sort of goes along this the same lines where okay, if the U.S. is starting to roll over, and the U.S. has been the primary pillar of marginal strength over the ever since the, the recession. What what does that leave us? And so, you know, what is your interpretation of China as well? Yeah, so China, we we spent a lot of time trying to triangulate what is happening in China. Um, because obviously some of the data coming from China is a little bit more problematic than most countries. And, and there's issues in most countries, as you know. But when we triangulate, and in fact, um, Emil referred to the last report we did on that, we can basically see, um, so China has led that two to four year sub-cycle in conditions of, of growth, growth and reflationary growth rolling into decelerating growth and in, in, decelerating inflation, um, that's two to four year sub-cycle we've seen for the last 15 years at least, China has typically led that. Um, we're seeing all of the same hallmarks of um, basically peak or rolling over conditions in China uh, of that sub-cycle literally as we speak. Now, yeah. things are a little bit confused there because they're also this latest sort of run up over the last you know, two years, for example, in China, you know, they, they've been doing a lot of things in this sub-cycle, especially with regards to like hoarding certain commodities and things um, that sort of make their international footprint a little bit more overstated um, than most people are, are giving it credit for. Um, but when we scratch beneath the surface and try to figure out what is going on, and like I say, that's a process more of triangulation and trying to get more more reliable or less politically uh, less 
data sets that are less liable to political manipulation, which means we tend to move away from the headline sort of data sets more to the obscure data sets um, to, to reconstruct what is what is going on. When we reconstruct all of that, we have that picture of underlying conditions in China basically peaking and, and rolling over already, which are slightly front-running that global um, sort of gross inflation subcycle that we've seen. And we're seeing that now starting to pick up more and more in stalling more conventional leading indicators of, of growth in things, particularly in the US and, and around the world. We're sort of seeing the beginning of that stall and potential sort of rolling over as well. Um, but because the underlying impulse in the last 12 to 18 months was predicated on such poor foundations, um, and within the context of a very impaired environment, whether you look at that through banking system lenses or uh, just growth conditions or pick a view, um, it's an environment where these sub-cycles are likely to persist and they're likely to become higher frequency. So where we've seen a two to four year sub-cycle in gross deflationary type condition, um, it's probably now more of a one to three year cycle I'd imagine, and these bouts of growth and inflationary growth are probably a little bit more transitory than people recognize. Um, is the common picture. Whether we look at China, like and all of this is related, they're just different sides of the same coin because it's a, it's a very interconnected, interdependent global picture. Well, like you said, we're trying to triangulate things, right? We're using, we're marrying that stuff with China, trying to figure out what the Chinese are doing with what's going on in the U.S. or European economy and matching that with what are global bond yields doing or markets telling us and all these things. It's, as Emil and I had just talked about last week, it's complementarity, which is totality of the phenomena. And I think when you, and I think it's an important point you just made, Daniel, is that these are not, you know, if you're thinking in short term, short, really short run timescales, like weeks or even months, then I think you're, you, you tend to focus too narrowly because these are pretty much longer term cycles. They're, you know, it, it, there's a lot going on in terms of uh, sustaining them and what gets them to roll over and when they possibly roll over and what that actually means. And I think you're also right about talking about the foundations of each one which is something Emil always points out, is that they seem to get weaker in each time we go through this. And that, that, that actually makes a big difference. If we're starting from a weaker foundation, as we certainly were you know, heading into 2020, that means a lot for what we should expect in 2021 and 2022 and moving forward. And that's certainly, I think, one component that we see you know, weakness in real bond yields and things like that, too. So there's a, we're really trying to put all of these things together to, put, to, to, to try to really uh, come up with a comprehensive view of what's, what must really be going on. Yeah, but, but that's the thing. When we, like we've just surveyed very briefly some of the more, like when we look at things in a, from a global holistic point of view and, you know, from a first principle basis, from data-driven sort of, um, you know, historic sort of bases as well, like we put it all together and it it makes the euro dollar and treasury and US dollar markets actually look quite reasonable in the way they're pricing it, right? Yeah. And it's completely counter to the popular narrative um, that we're seeing today, which is inflation is likely to be persistent, pervasive, new regime, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and the, the central bank 
monetary policies and whatever, and heading in MMT style directions more generally, more broadly. You know, that's causing a new regime, blah, blah, blah. But the bond markets, euro dollar markets, US dollar markets, etc., are just looking straight through this. You know, and that disconnect, usually in time, over, you know, when you look through history, whenever those three markets, those three categories of markets are in agreement and leaning in a certain direction, which is tending to be counter to the popular view, you know, every time you want to pay attention to the, the cues that those markets are giving us and just pull on that thread and explain and try and explore why are they pricing this way? You know, when the popular narrative and uh, is completely reversed. And in pulling in that thread, you typically start to find, you know, provided that your inquiry is sort of sincere and there's yeah, some honest, honesty. right? Yeah, you don't, you don't approach it with an agenda. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You yeah. Know, you, um, well, you know, I know a lot of people say this to me all the time too, is that bond yields are low because of QE. They're not really telling you anything. You know, we can throw out low yields because those are all central bank manipulated. And it really, it, it bugs the hell out of me, and I'm sure it does to you too, that, uh, that you know, oh, we, it's, this is the reason why we don't, we're going to ignore the bond market. When, as you just said, low yields have, 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 they have not steered you wrong time and time again, especially over the last 14, 15 years. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we will get to a point, I'm sure, where both Treasury, like the, the euro dollar treasury sort of complex is actually sideways, right? But we're just not there yet. If anything, we're still years away from that point. Um, they are still materially um, reflective of broader conditions. Um, now, eventually, you know, like the uh, Bank of Japan have done, they, they will sideline their, their market. We're into that process, but that's a multi-year process. Um, and the U.S. Treasury market in particular and the broader euro dollar system, you know, that is the system in many regards. Like They are so primary, they are so big. You know, the Fed, yes, are getting more and more involved in those spaces, particularly in the Treasury markets. Um, but they're still, they're becoming a material factor, but they have not taken away the signal from those markets yet. Right. But in time, I have no doubt they will get bigger and bigger and bigger and they will start to erode the signal in those markets. Um, and even when you look at you discount. So, so the Fed and central banks have uh, a, a heavier footprint on the shorter end of the maturity spectrum in treasuries in particular, you know, policy rates and, and sort of sub two year maturity spectrum. But when you push out beyond that, maturity sort of time horizon the fed's influence deteriorates massively right and that entire complex beyond that maturity time horizon are completely pricing um and leaning in the direction of what we're describing here on a global interconnected basis um and that's then on big, top that's, that's really a big part of why people are so confused and we talk about this all the time is that people don't understand how to interpret interest rates because as you, you probably were taught the same thing I was, which is that interest rates from from the shortest term to the longest term are essentially they're reflecting monetary policy. Whatever the Fed says, that's what interest rates are. And, you know, Alan Greenspan used the term a series of one year forwards, which to me, I just, 
I can't, I can't, I can't believe the guy actually said something like that. It's so ridiculous. But yet, that's the public by and large believes that interest rates are. That's the Fed. The Fed does interest. Rate. Every single interest rate in the world is manipulated by a central bank, and they're it's whatever they want to be. And I would go even further. I agree with you that the you know the Fed's influence on the yield curve. It kind of blends out, you know, somewhere around the two, three-year time horizon. It gets less and less. But you know, same thing in euro-dollar futures. You know, the near-term contracts are more heavily influenced. But in the treasury market, I would say that some of the shorter-term bills have been more manipulated or more influenced by collateral considerations outside of monetary policy than even that. So, if you factor that in, plus the longer-run yield curve, what you're really looking at is maybe the Fed has very, very little influence at all at this juncture that the that monetary policy isn't really built into much beyond, you know, normalizing to normal periods, except we're not in normal periods. Oh, absolutely. And in fact, what you're getting to is actually a link into what we're seeing in the currency markets as well, because one of the fallacies that people have is um, basically, I believe, misassigning the magnitude of importance to Fed-generated broader liquidity in the broader system, right? Now, the Fed are an important source of liquidity in its more broader forms to the broader system, uh, financial system in particular, but they're only one of many sources of liquidity. Like liquidity comes from all sorts of places in the broader uh, system. And so, you know, like if the Fed increased, and by the way, as you know, well, um, actually measuring what that quantity of liquidity or dollars or purchasing power is in the system like we we actually can't do like we don't precisely know what that is because there's so many money like instruments and liquidity sources and substitutes and effective sources of purchasing power out there that it's beyond our ability to, to define even though in the modern day we have so many different data sets on everything under the sun but yeah, we're always the Fed, missing the important ones, though, right? Yeah, we have data but, for everything except the stuff that we need. <laughs> yeah, that's a bit of another conversation. Yeah. But if the Fed increase the total aggregate supply of liquidity, let's just say by 5%, right? But all the other sources in aggregate, which are not necessarily related to the Fed or even correlated to what they're doing, have contracted by 7%, that's a net percent contraction in that broader aggregated pool of liquidity right and so one of the um one of the biggest issues and this is the segue into say currency market pricing of all of these global dynamics is people tend to overestimate the role and the impact of fed activity and as a source of liquidity and even as a um as a keys key barometer or, or signal a mechanism for broader liquidity conditions, the Fed might be increasing their balance sheet and be a net contributor of certain categories of liquidity in that broader system. But when that broader system of what actually creates and contributes to that aggregated picture of liquidity in the world is hemorrhaging and impaired itself, you end up with a tighter global liquidity environment than everyone is giving credit for. Uh, or giving itself credit for and taking your signal from central bank actions and contributions solely in exclusion to all of these other sources will lead you down the wrong garden path basically 
And so what we see in US dollar related currency markets and currency pairs is still a structurally and cyclically tight US dollar environment, right? Even though we have central banks and particularly the Fed in overall an expansionary footing. And on top of it, you know, we even see this particularly like if even in the gold market, which is another can of worms, but if we're on the expansionary footing that everyone thought we we're on in that broader system, we'd probably be, you know, spot price of gold north of two thousand or two and a half thousand by now. Um but that's probably a different conversation altogether, but what we're seeing even in currency markets is everyone is perceiving you know cyclically and structurally sort of loose or loosening conditions but in that broader financial system and global um sort of liquidity system it's actually a an inherently impaired and net tight set of conditions we actually have and, and from a us dollar centric perspective it's why even in this environment, even with this uh, impulse of activity over the last 12 months, the US dollar still hasn't really weakened beyond key supports. You know, and that's the sign on a multi-year basis of an inherently strong market, right? And so those structural conditions and trends that are more conducive to a multi-year uh, strengthening of, say, the US dollar versus most other currencies out there, is still actually well and truly intact. And so too are the net capital inflows into the US uh, from most parts of the world. Those underlying conditions and trends on a multi-year basis are relentless and they're still intact as well, right? And so we look at this from a multitude of different perspectives and they all keep having the same picture uh, sort of coming through and emerging. Yeah, that's it's it's what you don't see that's important, right? That's what we say all the time. It's not what you see because you can see the Federal Reserve's balance sheet, you can see the level of bank reserves change, and that's usually what we're supposed to focus on. And that's really where the mainstream inflation narrative has been. Certainly before the twenty twenty two was that look, the Fed was going to you know increase it was increasing the mon the money supply base money whatever they wanted to call it. Yet you know that you could see and you think, well, that must be what's happening. And so that's why, you know, a lot of the, in the media narrative, the mainstream narrative was always that, look, this is inflationary. The base case is inflationary, when in fact, that's, that was never true. And it hasn't been true for a very long time. The actual underlying base case is, is what we've just been talking about. It's the stuff you can't see, which is why we rely so much on these markets, because these particular markets, you know, dollar, as, you, as you mentioned, the dollar, treasury, euro dollar futures and others, those are the stuff, that's the, you know, the reaction to the things that are happening that you can't see. We're trying to, it's what we really wanna know is all of that stuff that's in the shadows that we can't see, what must be going on in them because obviously the, given the way things have worked out over the last decade and a half and really going back 50 years, it's the stuff that happens in the shadow that makes that makes all the difference in the world. And that's really, you know, it's even if we can't, we can't directly observe this global monetary system in the shadows, we can observe how conditions in the shadows change and what that does to these marketplaces. And that's why we spend so much time talking about markets rather than central banks, because you go, as you said, you go down the wrong path when it's, when you focus only on what you can see without, without 
without any sort of appreciation for the stuff that you can't and realizing the stuff that you can't see is immensely more more important immensely greater than the stuff that you can see and that's really i think that's what our you know your first principles approach evidence and all that stuff is it's it's about how do we look at these shadows because as we just said nobody's ever developed any real data for these things they could there's there's data for everything out there especially in the real economy but yet you know, we have no idea what's going on in terms of collateral, for example. Collateral is even, you know, is a, is a relatively uncontroversial topic. Even officials, academics, central bankers know that collateral is a huge part of this global monetary system. Yet here we are in the middle of 2021, and we have yet to see any major effort to, to, do, to change that, to say, let's, let's, let's look at securities lending and figure out what's going on. And so there's all these, these major components of this global shadow money system that we can't see, which leaves us, you know, as you said earlier, which I love the, the phrase, triangulate. We're trying to triangulate what's going on in the, in the hidden parts of the system so that we can make some kind of sense. Because if we're left to just the stuff we can see, we're always mistaken. We're always confused. We're always going looking in the wrong direction. Yeah, well, actually, even the growing importance of collateral in the broader system is evidence of deterioration of the system, right? Yeah. Um, because in a confidence-based system, which is what we basically have and what is necessary for increasing productive output of useful goods and services, et cetera, et cetera, if that confidence starts to recede, all of a sudden collateral increases in its importance. And the increasing um, necessity and, and actually backstopping of everything with that collateral function is evidence on a multi-year, multi-decade basis of that broader deterioration of the system. And when we look at the ability of the global system as a whole to actually, let's call it, manufacture useful and productive assets out there, which then become and reflect, you know, financial system assets that are productive and useful and et cetera that ability to produce high quality assets out in the system is also receding. And so we're seeing the pool, the, the aggregated pools of high quality assets in a more pure productive sense, shrinking, right? And then if we start to narrow, more narrowly define high quality liquid asset type sense, more in a financial economy sense, that pool is shrinking as well. You know, we're, we're functionally seeing um, fixed income markets around the world receding and being effectively becoming uninvestable and, and taking offline more and more. And that process is beginning even with the U.S. sort of fixed income markets. The more that central banks sort of step into that place and the only bid for fixed income instruments is either directly or indirectly mandated by government, the more that marketplace becomes uninvestable and the more it slowly dies. Um, now, we still, that process is much more, um, you know, much more underway and pronounced, especially in places like Japan and parts of Europe, et cetera, et cetera. But that disease, that cancer that is sort of, um, you know, reducing the available pool of high quality assets out in the world is, is definitely coming to the US as well. But it's only at the earlier stages rather than, you know, the more progressed stages as in Europe and the rest of the world. Now, even China, you see the same routine, but that's a totally different sort of story. But 
the the pool of fire quality assets out in the world which can only be produced by private non-government productive activity and enterprise right which requires actually functioning market mechanisms to efficiently and sustainably allocate resources you know which by the way you know the lesson of the 1900s should have been to anyone paying attention that uh, centrally planned allocations of resources and fixing of prices don't tend to end well. And in fact, they reduce and impede sustainable posting living standards, if not deteriorate altogether. Whereas market mechanisms um, predicated on a just rule of law that is effective and efficient that values property, uh, life, property and contracts, you know, makes contracts reliable and predictable, etc. That's the only way to sustainably increase the quantity of productive and useful goods and services out of the economy or sustainably increase living standards. Whereas everything we've been doing in the Western world and most of our advanced developed economies has been to suspend market mechanisms, disengage market mechanisms, and also institute a rule of like, um, uh, forget his name. It's Jim Grant, the interest rate observer. Yeah, Jim Grant. Yeah. Yes. He, he talks about the PhD standard, yeah. right? central banking. You know, we're substituting market pricing and market mechanisms uh, of resource allocation for basically the ego trip of a bunch of academics, you know, both in political, you know, That's fiscal cool. realms, regulatory realms. Um, and especially in the monetary arena, and that's just deteriorating further. And so, well, it, goes back, it goes back to what, you, what we talked about at the beginning about economists. What they're what they're really trying to do is create an ideal technocracy. The idea that if we have the most sophisticated mathematics and, and combined with computing power, we can predict the optimal. I, the, the arrogant term, the optimal outcomes for the most complex systems. And that's really where we've been working toward. And, and the thing is, most people don't know enough about it to argue that this is a ridiculous idea because it sounds like it's science, right? It's objective mathematics. Well, it's not objective mathematics. It's subjective econometric modeling, which is far from, far from objective science. It's really about a political agenda to create this, this, at least this pathway to a technocratic ideal that is that, you know, in practice, it's been a disaster in one place after another, whether there's computing power or not. You know, the, the idea that you can distill a complex system down to three, four, five, maybe a handful of independent variables is just the height of arrogance and hubris. And that's one of the things that really drove me and drove me nuts in, in college was that you mean to tell me that you can pick out three or four or five independent variables and from those you'll be able to predict the future, the optimal future? It just it just sounds so ridiculous because we're we're already starting from the fact that you're limited to the past. You know, all statistics is a snapshot of the past. And number two is it's subjective that you're picking out three or four different variables. It's not yeah. objective. Absolutely. In fact, you know, one of the first things you realize when you take an honest approach to trying to understand the world is pick a macro phenomena or big picture or any phenomena in what you're trying to understand of the world, right? Now, the first thing you need to do is identify all of the variables that is affecting that phenomenon, right? Um, 
Now that assumes you can even identify all of the different yeah, exactly. variants. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Which is an arrogant to... assumption to start with, right? That's right. But then yeah. we go headlong into the next one, which is okay, can we assign a magnitude of a assuming we've actually even identified all these key variables, can we uh, can we place and, and identify the correct magnitudes of importance to these variables? And then also, can we get the relationships between all of these things right, which tend to also change yeah. right, in yeah. time and intermittently and reflexively and all of this sort of thing? Um, and do we also understand the phenomena of emergence, right, where it's like a fallacy of composition issue. You can get a bunch of individual variables uh, but you can't necessarily, just from understanding the parts, understanding how they will all connect into the whole and behave. Because the behavior of the whole of those parts can almost be diametrically opposite or completely different to what would be implied by just the, the construct of the individual parts. Right. So there's this emergence type concept and phenomena that occurs as well. And so. When we start to run down this process, we, we're not confident on that we've even identified all the variables, let alone the magnitude, let alone the relationships of importance and causality or lack of, you know, are we just seeing correlation or et cetera, et cetera, let alone the emergent type phenomena that tends to happen within complex systems, right? Um, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, I, I call it the conceit of macro, right? The catch-22 is, is that we still operate in a world where we have to make decisions that will have consequences, right? And we allocate savings here or there or make this decision around business or life or career. They will still have consequence, but, and, and as a result, we still need to somehow find common sense, robust ways to navigate this complexity, right? By the way, all of what I'm talking about you know, identifying variables, magnitudes, relationships, emergent phenomena, et cetera, et cetera. We can't do it, but that's exactly what markets do, yeah. right? They discount all of that, right, into price, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, markets it's, are evidence and information, right? That's that's how we yeah. treat it, and that's not how economists treat it. And I think that's, that's part yeah. of it, too. Well, it's almost unbelievable when you sort of lay out this that the economics profession actually has that view, yeah. right? And that those the the elite of that profession are driving, you know, monetary and fiscal policy, <laughs> and they're deliberately superseding. Like they basically, and this is the arrogance I refer to in policymakers, that they have understanding of all these things to the point where they can allocate resources better than market mechanisms that discount that complexity. You know, it blows my mind. I think it would blow a lot of people's mind when they realize this, that when, when macroeconomists over the last couple of decades designed their DSGE models, the, the mainstream models that they all use, and they selected you know, a few of these important variables that are going to go into these DSGE models that are going to allow them to tell them, you know, how does the economy work? And if we do this or that, how does it work? They omitted they omitted not just the monetary function, they omitted all financial markets from it. You know, when they got to the 2008 crisis using Furbis and all of these Garch and Arch models, they didn't have a place to put in their financial crisis because it wasn't in the models. Well, they said, hey, let's, let's pick out the important variables. How about financial markets? Nah, we'll, we'll leave that out of this. We don't need that in there. It just, it blows my mind that, that 
they thought number one that they could pick all the variables and then they just left those out of the equation because it's actually too difficult to model there isn't any really good reason for leaving those out except for the fact that statistics mathematics don't really allow for an easy way for dsg models to incorporate especially an open-ended monetary system they just they just can't fit that into the model so they just thought we'll skip it <laughs> no definitely i it's but we could go on about this till you know all day there's one point though that i'd probably just make for people to consider though that to have properly functioning markets you they sit upon a just fair and efficient legal system right um you erode the quality of that legal system you know such that the value of life starts to diminish within that space so you know uh you know property rights start to diminish a contract no longer is necessarily reliable predictable you know like if you were entered into a contract in china versus entering into a contract in what at least used to be the us you know like in china you know that the time horizon the predictability of that contract is probably pretty limited because who knows what the regime or agenda will be that define or redefine the rule of law you know even next year let alone five ten years from now so that massively changes the nature or the capacity of that system to produce increasing abundance of useful goods and services in the us at least historically if you entered into a contract in the us you'd have pretty good predictability and robustness and confidence that 20 years from now that contract's still going to have teeth and that the legal environment's still roughly going to be very similar to the, the day you entered into it when you erode that rule of law um to the point where contracts now are shifting lots of sand in five years from now you can't be confident whether that contract's really going to be enforced with the same spirit as which it was entered into this really starts to change and twist the dynamics with regards to how market mechanisms and markets work on top of that system right and a lot of the reactions and the issues that we're seeing that i am at least perceiving uh to that, that are driving people to come up with all of these policy responses and directions that sit on the basis that this sort of are predicated on the idea that markets can't be trusted, you know, to allocate resource, to rationalize, to move resources from poor stewardship to good stewardship within that system. Um, it, it gets muddied with the deterioration of the rule of law um, and the, the efficient and, and just nature of rule of law um that at least has prevailed particularly in the us and a lot of the developed sort of world over the last 100 years for example um as that deteriorates that starts to make the world a much more complicated place and a world that is kind of pulling itself apart which then explains why we're seeing more of a structurally impaired growth environment in the world and the conditions that have come together over the last 50 years to see a globalized increase in economic activity predicated on a coming together of that broader global legal system at some level uh, and market functioning is now pulling itself apart systematically and that's pulling um, trade financial legal systems apart structurally at a globalized level which is you know we see it in the strains actually you talk about it all the time 
indirectly in the strains and unbalanced sheets and things in that broader banking system, globalized banking system, but it, but it impacts every single thing. And what we're left with is a world where we have increasingly disorientated capital moving from here to there to everywhere. And what we have is a world where you, you need to pay more attention to capital flows and liquidity than you do underlying valuation type dynamics because valuation is in effect whereas the capital flow where the capital is concentrating into that asset class or not is the cause right capital flows are primary valuations are secondary and so if we focus on what is the adaptive behavior of capital in an increasingly complex and deteriorating world that's our pathway to navigating, say, investment markets or portfolios or et cetera, et cetera. Even politics and things like that, right? It's, it's everything. We, we talk, it's stability, right? And stability is a measure of essentially, as you just said, trust and confidence. Can we be yeah. confident not just in markets, but the place that what markets are telling us and whether or not there's anything behind it? You know, it, it's funny. You go back to, you know, something that seems like a paradox, well, you know, Ever since August of 2007, you've seen we've seen unsecured liquidity markets just disappear. At the same time, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet has exploded. And so you see the Federal Reserve's balance sheet exploded, the level of bank reserves increased exponentially, really. And yet these unsecured markets have only disappeared, which are contradictory signals. Because as you pointed out earlier, if we were seeing a confident global marketplace heal itself from this you know, one-off, supposedly one-off 2008 crisis, we would expect the unsecured markets to come back and to come back mm. robustly. That's a sign that the system trusts itself. When you're saying, you know, I don't need collateral for every, every funding transaction out there. I can actually do an unsecured transaction with somebody because I'm relatively assured that, you know, the markets aren't going to dry up. That guy's probably going to repay me because everybody's doing really well. You know, it's, it's almost, it, it actually is contradictory. The lack of unsecured markets and the Federal Reserve's balance sheet, what tells you that, there's a lack of confidence. The more the Fed does, the less these, these, these market activities come back, which this lack of confidence, as you just pointed out, Daniel, absolutely contrib contributes a lot toward instability and all of the negative factors that just self, you know, become self-reinforcing it. It's really hard to get out of this because there's no central bank off-ramp. The more central banks do, the more they interrupt and create instability in, this, in the system that's already unstable. And there's really no way to... You know, it's not, at least there's not an easy way to put the horses back in the barn. Yeah, no, you're precisely right. And to even double down on the point, like central banks are reactive by nature. Right. And whenever central banks act, you always got to ask yourself, well, what are they reacting to? What, are, what is causing them to actually act? And typically what it is, is there's a greater strain in the system that is, you know, causing that system to kind of contract or implode that the central bank reacts to and then injects some form of expansionary policy or liquidity in some form into that broader system that is pressuring towards per contraction. Yeah, it's, not, and it's and also by the time itself, central banks react, you know it's already a big problem, right? Because <laughs> the central right. banks are so bad at reading problem. the signals. Correct. And, and that also gets back to some of our original points in the conversation where it's like it's not a one-to-one -one relationship between let's just simplify it and call it a unit of liquidity created by a central bank and a unit of, of liquidity created in that broader system. Typically they're trying to plug a hole. 
right? That's why they're reacting. They're trying to present pre prevent a reflexive contraction by injecting some form of liquidity to try and plug a hole. But there's a huge difference between a, a unit of liquidity that is created by free will transactions in a marketplace, in a non-public environment, a non-coercive environment, versus a unit of liquidity created by a central bank, right? Which is not necessarily predicated on confidence, trust, and increasing productive activity of useful goods and services, right? From a, a very, by definition, coercive style environment, right? A dollar of every unit of liquidity that's created in whatever category it is, they're not the same and they're not equivalent. And this is a bit more of a complex version of the old, you know, bad money drives out good money type principle. But, you know, but even the very action of central banks and the need to act in the way they are betrays a broader structural environment that is a hell of a lot more problematic than people realize. Same on the fiscal side of things to a less degree. Yeah, they always react after something gets really bad. That's why I always say when you see central banks doing something, you know, their balance sheet goes up. That's not a that's not a good sign. That's a that's a bad sign. The more it goes up, the worse you know it is. Yeah. Again, it's what you can't see, not what you can see. Daniel, people may be listening and they'd be saying, Well, it doesn't sound like either Jeff or Daniel are happy about the way things are, but it's managing, it's doing, you know, it's not a crisis right now, so I suppose we can manage. But we were talking at the beginning of our program, you said several times, rolling over, peaking. And you also, when, with respect to China, you said that the cycles were shortening. It seems, what is your outlook for the next year or so? It seems like you're saying that maybe this reflation, is it going to, and are we going to start heading back down towards a contraction? What are you seeing in the months and year months, like quarters and the quarters yeah, and years ahead? So leading in, so the, the things that really matter um, on a nearer term basis are, you know, leading indicators of growth, inflation, and, and even capital flows. Uh, and then beneath that, nestled into that, are conditions from a liquidity perspective. In, in that broader system. Um, and so leading indicators of, say, growth and inflation, for example, at least by the different ways we try and look at that, track it and measure it, that suggests a decelerating rate of growth in growth and inflation for the rest of this year, peaking about now-ish, um, and then with a, a risk to actually negative rates of growth um, early next year. Um, when it comes to capital flows, it's sort of all roads still lead to the U.S. It's it's just kind of unrelenting beneath the surface, um, at least by all the different ways we measure and map that one. Um, and we spend a lot of time trying to take abstract ideas and reduce them into data-driven, you know, objective data sets and metrics. You know, unfortunately, a lot of them are quite unconventional because there are no conventional solutions to this, right? And when we triangulate a phenomenon and try and collapse it into a data set, at least it becomes more objective. So when it turns, I have an opportunity to turn my view and, and understanding of things. But if I have an abstract concept embedded in my head, uh, I don't have that objectivity. 
and I can be more prone to holding on to my opinions, for example. And so we try to collapse it all into data-driven models, et cetera, et cetera. Same with the different many facets of liquidity in the world and underpinning different markets as well. And we're starting to see the tide recede as well from a liquidity perspective. Um, and in fact, you know, Jeff's, a lot of Jeff's work over the years has gone into, you know, or as a course, in the course of, um, you know, what he's presented over the years, he's identified, you know, the different, uh, you know, like Euro dollar one, Euro dollar two, three, four. Um, and for whatever it's worth, the different sort of leading indicators of that Euro dollar system are kind of suggestive that, you know, early next year, Jeff will be labeling that probably a Euro dollar number five event or sub cycle event or whatever. About number four B. I'm not. I'm not convinced we really got much reflation here. <laughs> so I'm. I'm still on the fence of whether we got reflation number four. Yeah. Jeff. Um, Jeff, what do you think? Uh, you don't like making predictions, but does that sound? Are you? Are you feeling the outlines of what Daniel is saying regarding the future, and that we may be decelerating and be heading into four B? Yeah, I think that, you know, we look at it from a probability standpoint, mm -hmm. right? The balance of probabilities were up to this point. And what is this point? I mean, for the last, you know, five, six months or the first part of this year, you know, for the last half of last year, balance of probabilities were very favorable. Things, everything was going right. We had everything coming out, pandemics, vaccine, all that stuff was, it was receding. It was, everything was pointing in the right direction. And then something happened. And it was really, as Daniel said, you know, it's, it's a combination of quite a few things. And it seemed it really does seem like balance of probabilities have tilted again toward the downside. Now, what exactly does that mean? I mean, I, I have no idea. I mean, it's, it's certainly possible that we could go back into a retrenchment or negative growth. I mean, that's sort of what the market's looking at as, as far as a potential downside. And certainly the probabilities of that have increased. But as far as, you know, are we actually have we as everything really rolled over? I don't know. I mean, uh, it's it's we're kind of in the middle of that process. And it's, it's really one of those things where you look at and say, a lot of things are moving in that direction. So it's one of, we can't just ignore that as a possibility. And certainly we have to take, it's something we have to take more and more seriously, especially since it seems to be showing up, as Daniel said, in any number of things. It's not just like one thing here or there. We say, it's just this one leading indicator that's kind of signaling some issues. It's, it's really a broad set of things that are saying, you know, we we've, we may have shifted from a more favorable probability distribution to a less favorable probability distribution, whatever that eventually means. Yeah, and in fact, you know, the thinking in terms of probabilities, like I, I do have to qualify everything I just said, you know, because <laughs> yeah. at the end of the day, we don't really care what happens, like when we're trying to understand and navigate the world, especially from an investment portfolio point of view. All we're trying to do, trying to do most of the time is identify either the substance of the move or the lack of substance of the move in a market or in a system. Um, and then also just adapt, hopefully in a somewhat timely way, uh, depend relative to our mandates, but, you know, reassess at the end of the year, every few months, every new month of data is another way to triangulate what is going on. Um, but, you know, Emil, when you put a gun to my head and say sort of, where are we? Well, most of our leading indicators are leaning in that direction, you know, and, and clearly right now, as you would know, market positioning in most markets around the world is is not 
any is the exact opposite of what that um, scenario would suggest. And so, you know, yeah, that's, I mean, Daniel, that's, that's really the compelling thing. So, I mean, but it, it's that there's a uniformity here that it's almost unusual, even for what we've seen in these euro dollar inflation cycles. It's amazing how uniform, it, it, you know, all the stuff. The reflation trade came on January, February, and then boom, it's like somebody flipped a switch and it disappeared. And it wasn't like it disappeared in this market or that one. It disappeared in almost every market all at once. And it's like, this is really compelling because it's so uniform and you usually don't see something like that. Yeah, uniformity uh, of perception and agreement usually um, marks turning points in markets, basically. Um, and it is quite surprising how uniform the, the consensus and popular view and then the expression of that in the positioning within markets all around the world. Um, and so markets are set up in a manner that are definitely vulnerable to any form of disappointment in the, the current prevailing narrative. Um, and even the way markets do or don't shake out of that excessive position um, now, say over the next six months, that will reveal a hell of a lot, you know, even in its own right. Um, and obviously, the further forward we try and anticipate and the, the foggier everything gets, but, you know, at least we have a baseline uh, sort of scenario, so to speak, probabilistic scenario, and then we can adapt as it unfolds. Like, like I say, like a lot of markets and, and the key to navigating this world more and more is more just following the money and, and looking at the way capital is moving around the world because more and more markets are disengaged from you know freely functioning market mechanisms and so old school fundamentals uh, that mean reversionist type tendencies not what they used to be uh, because the system is fundamentally shifted and, and changed Daniel, can you tell us a little bit about prerequisite capital and what you do after you answer this question, which just popped into my head is you've read all the historical accounts. Do you remember a similar moment to, to the one that you're just describing where markets are being disconnected and the world is sliding in the manner it is right now? Have you ever come across anything like this? not to the unified magnitude that we see today on a globalized basis. Um, you know, there's elements, there's a hint of everything in history in today, you know, and in, in fact, um, you know, like as when, the early stages of 2020, as that was unfolding, you know, throughout that first quarter last year, you know, you would continually escalate, you'd see the patternings of different crises and issues in the past, but then that would get exceeded in the space of weeks and you're sort of slowly escalating the historic precedent going well. And, and by the, you know, the time volatility really blew up in say March uh, last year, you'd thrown that all the precedent out the window and go, this is a mix of everything, but worse. And, um, <laughs> you know, all in such a compressed space. And whereas on a broader time horizon, there's a lot of, sort of precedent and pattern in history that are echo echoing today, but I couldn't I could not identify a similar period of history because right now, like what the, the globalized system over the last forty years especially has become so interlinked and so interdependent as a whole, we've really become um, 
become become one more than we've ever been throughout history. In history, you had dispersal of different systems that could, you know, they they'd have they'd be impacted by happenings in other parts of the world, but they'd still be somewhat, you know, running to their own drumbeat to a degree. Uh, these days, though, like especially in the last thirty years, we've become so much more unified. It's it's ridiculous. Like we are a ma- matured globalized system that is heavily interdependent and interlinked. And part of the issues we're seeing is that for the last 15 years, that interlinked um, sort of mature system is starting to actually pull itself apart, um, which is causing a lot of the structural reasons why, like even manifesting in a lot of the work that Jeff does around the Euro dollar system, is, is that pulling apart over the last 15 is, is years is why everything's becoming so strained and impaired. Tell us a little bit about your company, Daniel. Yep, so we're based in Australia. We have two main aspects to what we do. We do research and consulting work, mostly to the rest of the world. Uh, And then we manage portfolios, mostly for Australian clients. And so it's the same sort of research and processes and data-driven. We we tend to overanalyze everything. Um, because we're kind of the only way to do this, I've found, is just to kind of give it everything and be a little bit obsessive <laughs> about it all. Uh, but I try to highlight and I, you know, make objective, especially in our, our publications, the assumptions. You know, the first principles. Um, trying to distill everything back to data sets that people can see the history of, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, and reconcile all of that so it's more objective. And the frameworks we use are objective, what we're doing is objective, how we're seeing it all. And that makes us, you know, a little bit more confident that we're not going to uh, fall in love with our ideas too much. And we'll be able to see change when it happens, uh, whether it's in liquidity conditions or whatever. Uh, and it allows our clients to challenge us better as well, <laughs> which is I, important. Hey, there's no such thing as overanalyzing. If you, if you aren't being obsessive, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> That's our theory. Jeff, do you have yeah. any final questions for Daniel? No, I think we 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 covered a lot of a lot of stuff here, a lot of ground here, and I think it, it really it comes back to that original initial impulse and drive and understanding that you know there's something wrong with the the mainstream worldview, and I think you know people like you, all three of us here have have sensed that and have taken it in different directions or, and we've been obsessive about it enough so that we can try to build up our knowledge base as Daniel is saying, so that we can, we can at least be more assured, not we'll never be completely assured, but at least relatively more assured that we kind of know what we're talking about, at least, you know, to some reasonable degree. And it's really, like I said, I mean, I know Daniel's an obsessive guy. You almost do have to be obsessive about it because of these limitations. And if, you, if there's really no other way around that, and if you're if you're willing to put in the time and effort, it's really kind of the only way to make sense of what's going on, making sense of everything. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I can see we've probably been talking too long because uh, the sun's come up uh, over the course of our conversation, and lighting's all over the shop. But you know, yeah, it's already tomorrow where you are. Yes. Well, thank you very much, Daniel. We've never talked to anybody from tomorrow so this will be a first for this show but really honestly thank you daniel 
for all the years that uh, we've known each other, all the conversations we've had. I'm glad that we could finally have one on the air in front of everyone. And uh, I look forward to your next report. And I do encourage everyone to check you out on, on uh, you can find some of your reports at the website, let people know what the website is. And also, I remember you did a great presentation on the topic of gold at the end of 2019. I think that's still on YouTube. So search Daniel Want and gold. And then where can people find some samples of those reports? What website? So prerequisite.com.au. So there's a bunch of sample reports and you can look at quarterly letters. There's also an entire page of training videos. So in some ways, it's more of a portfolio-focused perspective, but a lot of training videos on how we believe the world works and then how we navigate the world from a portfolio context. Um, probably more more videos than you, you probably would care to watch. So. But anyway. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you very much, Daniel. We'll talk to you again soon, I hope. Sounds good. Thanks. 